Well, good morning. Welcome to Cider Ridge. My name is Jason. I'm privileged to serve here as senior pastor. It's great to be with you this morning as we kick off our Advent season. We're, we're launching the next uh, four weeks in a new sermon series we're calling The Anticipated Christ. Uh, this is kind of an odd type of year, time of year, uh, because it's this weird thing that we as Christians do where we we kind of we look backwards to the birth of Jesus. We retell the story of Jesus' birth, but we also look forward to the day in which Jesus will have another advent, another arrival, another coming, the, the day in which John writes about in Revelation where the new heaven and the new earth come. When, when that, that guttural prayer that we pray often, how long, O Lord, as Anthony reminded us, is, is fully answered in Jesus' coming. It's this kind of in-between time that we look backwards and we look forward. And it, it matches in many ways this, this sense of anticipation that we all have around this season. We're, we're anticipating gifts and we're shopping and our checkbooks are taking quite the hit. We're anticipating a family that will gather and perhaps that induces some anxiety in you, uh, especially when uh, you have friction or tension within your family systems. Uh, theologically, it's an odd time too because we look back to the birth of Jesus and it is a story that for most of us is really familiar. I often think around Christmas time and Easter, how many sermons can you preach on the same event? Uh, Jesus came as a baby, Jesus died, and he rose again. And so you, you can put little cute stories on it, uh, but it's the same story told over and over again. And perhaps that's actually the point, that we need to hear this story, the birth of Jesus, over and over again. And, and when we kind of pull back a bit and we look at the big picture, we begin to see how incredibly revolutionary the story of Christmas, the first advent, truly is. And so that's what I want you uh, to do today is to invite you to pull back just a little bit. We're going to look at, broadly speaking, the grand narrative, the big story we find in Scripture. And to do that, we need to connect two events. We have to, as we approach Christmas, as we approach the Nativity, we cannot disconnect the manger from the cross. Without the nativity or the incarnation, God descending, coming down to us, the cross becomes just another story of a criminal who is crucified by Rome. And vice versa. If we disconnect the cross from the nativity, then the nativity just becomes a story about a pair of poor parents who couldn't find a place to have their baby. And so to begin to see the big picture, the grand narrative of not only Advent, but the grand narrative of Scripture itself, we're going to start from the beginning. So I want to invite you to turn in your Scripture to Genesis chapter 3. In the Black Pew Bible, it's on page 2. It's really easy to find. Genesis chapter 3. 
verses 8 through 19. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 3, let me remind you the context. This is the infancy of humanity. This is the story of Adam and Eve, those first uh, human beings, the kind of archetypal image of humanity uh, in the garden. And, and, And God gives them very clear instructions. You are to rule and reign and have dominion over this garden. You are to steward the goodness of this garden. And God gives them one rule, don't eat of the tree. And of course, what do they do? They, they eat of the tree. We hear of this serpent who arrives that tempts uh, Adam and Eve to eat of this fruit, and then it goes south from there. So listen to verse 8. After they ate the fruit, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I died, or I ate, excuse me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, for he will strike your head, and you shall strike his heel. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God thanks be to God. As we continue to read on, we hear the, of the curse that, that is thrust upon humanity. We hear that there's now all of a sudden because of this, this mistake that these two humans make, what we now call sin, because of this moment, the world is changed. A breakdown begins in four key relationships. We see automatically the breakdown between God and these human beings. Adam was afraid, fearful of God, and ashamed of his own body and covers his own nakedness. We see even a breakdown between humanity one from another. These two human beings were created as co-equals, co-image bearers of God, and immediately within the infancy of Scripture, we begin to see the breakdown of that relationship. Patriarchy begins to take hold. And women become, over centuries, were forced into this subservient relationship, a breakdown in humanity's relationship to another. We just turn one chapter over and we see the the rivalry between Cain and Abel, the breakdown of even siblings, results in the first murder of Scripture. If you continue to read on, we hear even the breakdown of creation itself. That this good earth that God created now will bear thorns and thistles and humanity when we are called to have stewardship over the world will now have dominion and labor over the world. Even to the point where Paul would later pen that creation itself is groaning for redemption. And lastly, even humanity, there's a breakdown in their own sense of identity and purpose That image of God that was established within humanity becomes marred. 
It's a breakdown in relationship. Now, theologians call this moment, because they're not very creative, they call it the fall. And they say then that what's resulted after this moment is a passing on of sin, what we call original sin. That now from this moment on, humanity would suffer under the consequences of Adam and Eve. Now, even understanding creation itself and, and recognizing this Genesis as a, more of a theological book than a, than a history lesson of how the world actually came into being, it is these early ancient writers trying to make sense of why, if God created this world good, is it so hard for humanity to rise to that goodness? The traditional belief then becomes that Adam's sin is passed on from generation to generation. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5, perhaps his most, his kind of Magna Carta uh, portion of Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law. But sin is not reckoned when there is no law, yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin were not like the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Paul builds upon this idea that Adam's sin is passed on to all humanity through generation, and while our sin may be different than Adam's original sin, this inclination to sin is all because of this moment in history. Now, we need not look very far to see empirical evidence of this. John Wesley, the founder of our tradition, wrote about a 300-page theological treatise on original sin. And in about midway through uh, this 300-page document, he eventually kind of gets to the point, place where he says, you know, as we're talking about all this heavy biblical stuff, all we really need to do is look outside of our window to see the realities of sin. We named some of that just a moment ago, or Todd did, in Colorado Springs, a shooting in an LGBTQ club, and a few days later in a Walmart in Virginia, to corporate greed, to environmental degradation, to human exploitation, to war, and all the isms that exist in our world, let alone to say of our own personal sins you and I commit, our need to protect ourselves, our anger and resentment towards others, our need to hold on to stuff as if stuff gives us identity and purpose. We have a sin problem. We need not look very far to realize that problem. Now, how we understand sin or how we've been taught about sin will directly impact our understanding of who God is. And there seems to be kind of two divergent views when it comes to the conversation of sin. On the one hand, the tradition in which I was raised in says this, I am a worm, I am vile, and I am deserving of God's wrath. That there is nothing good inside of me. That God is, is just holding me over the pit of hell with like these cosmic scissors. And just about, if I make one more mistake, God's going to cut me loose. 
and is based in fear, a God who is angry and vengeful and short-tempered. Many, if you were raised in some uh, evangelical traditions, even some Catholic traditions, Reformed traditions, this is the image of God and sin. It is a shame-based view. That I'm then so bad, even if I've accepted Christ as my Savior, there's still something inherently bad about me that I must now spend the rest of my life afraid of God, seeking to earn God's favor. But on the other side, those of us who like to, you know, view ourselves as a bit more progressive than that, we suffer from, from this idea that says, well, I'm, I'm seemingly good, and therefore God can't help but love me. So we say things like, well, I'm not as bad as those people. We like to compare ourselves and say, well, it, it, I'm not as bad as them, so God must love me. I'm a good and loving person. I've not committed any mortal sin. It's kind of this Christian humanist position. And and so what happens in in those of us who are in this kind of more kind of progressive view of of God and and sin, we'll we'll spend a whole lot of time trying to perfect ourselves. We we love self-help books. Because then if if, if I'm a good and upstanding citizen, then then I'm not so bad, so... I've already earned God's favor. I actually think both of those positions are equally dangerous. The one reduces God to an angry and vengeful egomaniac. And the other reduces God to this kind of grandparent in the sky, because let's be honest, you never can do wrong in grandma and grandpa's eyes. But what if I told you the whole point of Scripture, actually, the overarching theme of the Bible really isn't about sin at all? It isn't that sin is absent from Scripture. We just read some texts that highlight it. It's assumed from the, 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 the first chapters of Scripture that humanity has a sin problem. It isn't that sin is overlooked or not taken seriously. I mean, God's very, God's dead serious about sin. But when we boil the Bible down to simply being about humanity's sinfulness, the Bible either becomes a rule book in which to beat people over the head, or on the other side, the Bible becomes a self-help book about just making myself a better human being. The whole point of Scripture, from beginning to end, is the revealing of the nature and the character of God, despite the reality of sin. Let me say that again. The whole point of these 66 books that we have, the thousands of verses From beginning to end, the whole point is the revealing of the nature and the character of God, despite humanity's sin. The God revealed in Scripture looks both at the person who's beating themselves up, 
riddled with shame and guilt, seeking to earn God's favor and approval. And the person who thinks of themselves as worthy and deserving of grace and says, it's not about you. It's about me. You've received grace not for what you've done or what you haven't done. You've received grace because I love you. And in the end, that's all that matters. Or as Brendan Manning says in his book, All is Grace. This is a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. This is grace. This is actually what Scripture's about. It's not that God's not concerned with a sin problem. In reality, God has a grace problem. God seems to give grace to those who think they have already earned it and those who think they don't deserve it. Indiscriminately, God gives grace. And this is actually what we read in the Genesis narrative in a passage and a verse that we easily gloss over. Look at verse 15 of Genesis 3. Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then this phrase, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Who's the, in this text, who's the he who will strike the heel or the head of the serpent? The point of Genesis 3 isn't really about sin. Now that's part of it. I'm not glossing over that. The the sin is present. There's a naming of it. There's a revealing humanity has messed up. But it's really revealing this one verse. He will strike the head of the serpent. And Christians have looked back at that passage in making sense of the cross, and said that is exactly what Christ had accomplished. God, who in Christ Jesus strikes the head of the serpent through his death and his resurrection on the cross. This is what scholars call the proto-evangelium. That's a nice fancy word. That'll get you maybe 5,000 on on Jeopardy or something. Proto-evangelium. Evangelium means good news. Protos first. This is the first gospel, the first good news we see in Scripture. So while Genesis 3 is about the brokenness of humanity and how humanity messes everything up, we find in this verse that from the very beginning, God recognizing sin, recognizing the brokenness of humanity, says, but I will be the one who will ultimately save you. I will be the one who will ultimately be the one who strikes the head of the serpent. That God would not sit up in the heavens and let humanity get what they deserved, nor would God sit up in the heavens and just let humanity to try and figure it out on their own. This God descends This God comes down. 
This God comes as a little child, Jesus. Solely out of love. To indiscriminately give grace to all. Those who think they don't deserve it and those who think very high and mighty of themselves. It says the whole point of Scripture is about me and what I have done and am doing in the world. It's all about Jesus, which sounds so elementary to say. We're supposed to say that in church, aren't we? It's all about Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. That's what every kid gives. It's Jesus. But that's the point, the simplistic yet profound point, that even as humanity messed up, God already put a plan of redemption in place. This Christmas story, when we back up, And we get beyond the lights and the food and the concerts and the presents, which are all wonderful. Advent, the season of waiting, is about telling the story over and over and over again. That this Savior, born of a virgin, placed in a feeding trough, surrounded by shepherds and travelers from the east and angels and goats, would grow to be Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And out of a profound love that we cannot fully comprehend, as the Creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, bears a cross, dies and rises, so that you and I and all of creation once exiled and out of the garden, separated from God due to our sin, can be reconciled, redeemed, and made new in Christ. This is the hope we're talking about at Advent. This is the hope that gets me out of bed every day. No matter how good I am at the end of that day, or how many mistakes I've made at the end of that day, God continues out of profound love to show me grace. And I can't earn it. I can't even fully understand it. And yet it is there. Given to us all the way foretold all the way from the time humanity made its first mistakes. God says, I'll be the one to right this wrong. I'll be the one who will thrust myself into history and will redeem from within the world. Friends, we need to tell this story over and over and over again. Because I like to sometimes think of myself as pretty put together, and yet I'm in need of grace. And there's moments in my life where I'm beating my head against the wall saying, how could I have made such a stupid mistake? And I'm in need of grace. From beginning to end, this story, this grand narrative tells us of who this God is that we find wrapped in little linen cloth, in a feeding trough, 
born to poor parents some 2,000 years ago. And it's the same God we see hanging on a cross, looking out upon the world and saying, God, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. That is the hope we receive this Christmas and Advent season. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we have made faith about so many things, about rules and regulations, about traditions, and all of those are fine and good, but God, it ultimately is about you. That even as humanity messed up, and as we continue to see generation after generation struggling, you continue to thrust yourself into humanity's story to redeem us. So God, whether we think we are deserving or not, would you pour out your grace upon us? Would you remind us that you are the great Savior? That as we get closer and closer amongst the hustle and bustle that this season always brings, that our eyes would be focused on the nativity, the creche, that in it contains the absolute profound love And may that love transform us, redeem us, and make us new. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. As we respond this morning, I'd invite you.